0: Great, let's read some well-known verses to start with, shall we? Uh, You hear them in lots of carol services. It's not even remotely like Christmas tonight, but uh, we hear them so often. Sometimes they just wash over us and we don't realize just how revolutionary they are. This is John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. (laughs) Those are incredible words, aren't they, about a human being who had lived just a few years before John wrote those words. And uh, it's... It was the case earlier on in the 20th century that uh, lots of scholars thought that John's Gospel was written 200 years later by uh, somebody who uh, had never really met the living Jesus. But we now know that can't possibly be the truth. We know, I was telling some students this week, because uh, of the Ryland's manuscript, for one thing. Uh, It's a fragment of manuscript we found in the Sands in Egypt back in 1925. And it's one of the earliest copies... Of part of the Gospel of John you could hope to come across and it takes a writing of John well back into the first century this is written by somebody who knew what he was talking about when it was given to the Rylands librarian he said this fragment must have been written when the ink on the original was scarcely dry (laughs) that's a pretty old manuscript and so we know that John was writing not long after Jesus lived and yet he's saying this is somebody who lived and was the Son of God. He really was uh, somebody who could introduce Peter to the Father in a way that nobody else could. And he says, we beheld his glory. What he means by that, of course he goes on to tell us in the rest of the Gospel where he talks about eight great miracles that Jesus did, seven before he, he died and one after, after he rose again. And he uses those just as an introduction. And he says right at the end of the book, these things, you know, I think if you wrote down everything Jesus did, the world itself would not be big enough to contain all the books that would be necessary. So uh, he, he says, this is just a taste. This is just a sample. There's an awful lot more. Well, this is what Christians claim about Jesus. It's what we've been saying about tonight. But can you actually show that it's true? Let's have a look, shall we? If this is going to work, it's good. No, oh, no, it's not. It's gone to the author of salvation here. Um, is that me, Richard, or is it uh, something else? Right. Okay. Let's go. Try it. Try again. No, nope, God wants us to sing hymns. Okay. Fair enough. Um, tonight we're going to look at this. Lots of people talked about this. I mean, if you look at this, for instance, this is a a, a magazine from America. The ancient prayers are in Jesus' own handwriting. Found, Christ's lost scrolls. And this is tapping into the idea many people have that there must be more about Jesus out there somewhere. We just have to find it. And that will change everything. I will return in the year 2000. Well, he didn't do that really, did he? So whatever that manuscript was, it couldn't have been the right one. I will heal the single disease. I shall establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. Cursed are they who live in evil. And it's completely fake and bogus, as is this... Oops, I've gone the wrong way, sorry. Have I gone the wrong way? Yes, I must have done. Yep. Yeah, which uh, is, is another issue of the same magazine. New Dead Sea Scroll describes Christ's passion in Mary Magdalene's own words. Find of the century, Jesus' last warning for mankind. And again, it's completely made up. But how does this stuff sell? Because many people think there's got to be more. The Bible, you can't trust that. So we're still making finds that will, one of these days, disprove Christianity and show us what Jesus was really like. Here's a final one. Found in Dead Sea Cave, lost book of the Bible. Inside, Holy, Holy Scroll reveals secrets of eternal life. Isn't that the last one, actually? I think there, there might be another one. No, there's not. Um, there's one that claims that Jesus was divorced from Mary Marilyn. I never knew they got married in the first place. But uh, that kind of rubbish is being talked, and some of it sells lots and lots of copies. Those magazines are not very great, but this was a serious threat a few years ago. This is Dan Brown, who wrote a novel called The Da Vinci Code. (laughs) And I remember having, when I first heard about it, being in Amsterdam in the airport and just walking around the corner and seeing a bookshop ahead of me, one of these bookstalls at Dovet airports, with a whole wall, Da Vinci Code, Da Vinci Vinci Code, copy after copy after copy. Oh no, what is going on here? Because Dan Brown's novel uh, clearly makes the claim that uh, the whole story of the New Testament is bogus, as we shall see in a minute. So what we need to do is look at the claims that uh, Christians actually make about Jesus and see what evidence we can find for them. Now, I want to uh, do some more on this another time where we talk about the three things that you could say to a non-Christian on the subject and and, uh, how you can answer back and all sorts of things like that. Um, That will not be next week, I'm afraid, because having made an absolute mess of my diary, I'm not going to be here next week. Sounds as if you've got anything going on anyway, quite honestly, but uh, but we'll have to do that some other time. But this is the basic claim we're talking about, that a man who actually lived 2,000 years ago, that's the first thing that people would question, did he actually live or did he not? Do we actually know anything about him? That man who actually lived 2,000 years ago did miracles, that's another question. Can you believe in miracles today? The greatest New Testament theologian of the 20th century, Rudolf Bultmann, said we had to demythologize the whole story, get rid of the myths and the fantasies, and get a non-miraculous Jesus back in position. So... He knew what he was talking about. He, he, he'd read the, the Gospels and worked on them quite a bit. Was he right? Did miracles. Um, taught ideas which are still treasured today. And also claimed to be equal to God himself. We'll talk about the resurrection on another occasion because that's a claim that people find even more difficult. And, well, we, obviously that needs a bit more unpacking. But these four perhaps we can have a look at tonight. Let's have a look at them one by one. First of all, did Jesus really live? Well, the first thing you've got to say about Jesus is that he does, he does appear in history. This is Josephus. We met him the other week, if you remember, when we were talking about the evidence for the Scriptures. Josephus was a Jewish historian and talked about the books that the Jews recognized as being part of our Old Testament, or their, their Bible, as it was and uh, his 22 books fit in with our 39. Well, Josephus also wrote about the history of his own time, and he wrote about Jesus. Listen to this. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, the teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prince had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. Now lots of historians look at this passage and say, this sounds very bogus indeed. Unless Josephus was a Christian, he wouldn't expect him to write like that. And I think that's absolutely true. So what's going on here? Well, it looks as if some things have been interpolated into this passage, which appears in every manuscript of Josephus we have got, by the way. Um, but it looks as if somebody somewhere has tampered with it a little bit and put in some more Christian references to, to big up Jesus a little bit. And we do have a copy of the manuscript of Josephus, which was discovered earlier this century, where none of the bits about Jesus are in, about his miracles and all of the rest of it, but simply the fact that he lived and he was a wise man and he taught good things. That much, Josephus might as well have said. But the important thing is, he mentions Jesus, and this is as much a part of Josephus as anything else he wrote. So unless somebody has put the whole thing in, you know, just this is what Josephus uh, wrote with a few additions made to it. Um, and I don't think somebody's put the whole thing because it's been very clumsily done, hasn't it? At the end, he says, the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. Well, if he'd really just said a couple of sentences before, he was the Christ, you wouldn't expect the Christians to be extinct at this day, would you? So it's clearly been altered in a very clumsy kind of a way. But it's there. And the fact is that Josephus... A Jewish historian, the greatest of Jewish historians, who was born just a couple of years, five years after Jesus lived, mentions Jesus as a real person. Then, if you go to the Romans, you've got Tacitus. And Tacitus was the greatest of Roman historians. And he wrote a lot, not about the Christians, because he wasn't interested in them, but about the Emperor Nero. And uh, Nero, as you remember, uh, was there. He was the Caesar when Rome burned down and people soon started murmuring about it and saying Nero had this done, which is certainly possible, and we just don't know. Tacitus certainly thought so, and he said, Consequently, to get rid of the report that Nero had set fire to the city himself, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius, that even tells you when uh, Jesus died, at the hands of one of procurators, Pontius Pilatus. And a most mischievous superstition, that's Christianity, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, at the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their sentence and become popular. You can tell from the way that quote ends that Tacitus wasn't a great fan of Christians, but he mentions that Jesus is a real person. And there are too many of these kinds of things for you to, 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 to doubt. Suetonius, another great historian who lived just a few years after Jesus, wrote about the Jews being expelled by Claudius from Rome in AD 49. You might just vaguely remember last when we talked about the book of Romans. We talked about the fact that all of the Jews had to leave. And and, and uh, when Paul wrote Romans, they were just coming back to the city because Claudius was now dead. And it was safe to come back if you were you know, sort of careful about it. And uh, that was causing problems problems between the Jews and the Gentiles and the Christian church in Rome. Well, Suetonius wrote about that edict, and he said that the Jews were thrown out because the Jews were constantly rioting and arguing with one another at the instigation of Crestus. Now, Crestus is, 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 is not a name that they found that Suetonius that we found anywhere else in Roman history. But uh, we do know that in the second century, Christianity was sometimes called Christianity, <laughs> and Christ was sometimes called Christus in Latin. And so it seems to be Jesus Christ he's talking about. He's just not very interested or very accurate about the whole thing. He's just filling in that detail. Christ, Christus, you mean Christus? He would say, yep, yep, possibly. He started riots or something, didn't he? Because he doesn't know much about Jesus. And, of course, the answer to that is, no, he was dead. And uh, Suetonius Tony, so not really interested. He would say, yeah, whatever. whatever. But he does mention Crestus as somebody who actually lived. And that's the important thing, isn't it? He's somebody uh, who is mentioned by historians. And there are other reasons for believing in him as well. So Bart Ehrman, who is a very interesting theologian and historian, says you cannot doubt that Jesus actually lived. Now, Bart Ehrman became a Christian when he was in his teens. And right through his university years in America, he worked with Agape, Campus Crusade, to bring people to Christ. But somehow in the course of his theological studies, his faith was shaken. And so he's still a working theologian today. He does not believe in Christianity. He doesn't believe in the resurrection. He thinks the body of Jesus was probably thrown into a common grave and then lost. Well, we'll see what that one's, uh, how that theory fits when we talk about the resurrection. But even Bart Ehrman, who's an, uh, against uh, his old faith nowadays, says this. There are several points on which virtually all scholars of antiquity agree. Jesus was a Jewish man known to be a preacher and teacher who was crucified, a Roman form of execution, in Jerusalem during the reign of Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. This is the view of nearly every trained scholar on the planet. So there is not much doubt that Jesus actually lived. He really was a human being. And uh, there are other things as well that you could say. Oh yes, this is uh, a herman again. Uh, an interview with him uh, uh, about a book he wrote. He wrote a book called Did Jesus Exist? And he said he wrote this because it was a surprise to me to see how influential mythicists are. Mythicists, which I can't even say properly, uh, is a word for people who believe Jesus was just a myth. He never actually existed. And Ehrman was so shocked by how many people that said that kind of casual thing, oh, Jesus never existed at all. And were so non-Christian though he is, he wrote this book to say Jesus really did exist. In the Soviet Union, in fact, he says, the mythicist view managed at that time was the dominant view. And even today, in some parts of the West, parts of Scandinavia, it's a dominant view that Jesus never existed. And the just says to people, look, if you're going to dismiss Jesus, at least do it by doing some thinking about him. Don't just say, oh, he was a myth, he was a fairy tale, because that is not possible. So, Jesus existed. And... uh, um, the next uh, piece of evidence for that, I, I would think, would be he made an explosive impact on the world right from the word go. This is a map of how Christianity spread in the early days. This is up to the 2nd century, 100 years after Jesus. And you see churches, those little dots on the map, all over the shores of the Mediterranean, Right round the Roman Empire, people have started believing in Jesus, foreign communities telling their neighbours, that doesn't happen. Unless there is a real Jesus somewhere in the story, who made it happen? You read in the book of Acts, don't you? That on the day of Pentecost, and that's where we are this weekend, in the church's calendar. 3,000 people in one city became Christians. Shortly after that, it counted up 5,000. And lots of the priests started becoming Christians too. And look in Acts documents just how the whole thing exploded from nowhere. Now, that wouldn't happen with a fairy story of Jesus. There had to be somebody real and somebody whom people uh, were capable of believing in. For that to happen. So there's all that and if you move on into the next century, uh, sorry, uh, the orange bits on that map show you how far Christianity had got, where all these centers of Christianity were, by the year 300 AD. And over the next 300 years after that, when the persecution went away, you can see in the light orange color up there, how Christianity just spread without anything to stop it whatsoever. Now if it's a myth and a fairy tale that's behind all of that, it's the only time that's ever happened in history. Then again, too, you've got the Gospels. And we have to remember some things about the Gospels. First of all, the Gospels are early. They weren't written centuries after the events. The earliest of the Gospels comes maybe 30 years after Jesus was put to death. And uh, because they are early and because they circulated in places where Jesus was known, like Jerusalem, it wasn't possible to make up lots of stories about him. There were people there who could say, no, that is not true. I know, because I was there at the time. Um, I've often said in in, in school classes, you know, suppose um, uh, your teacher had a bad accident this afternoon and and, uh, died, run over by a bus or something like that. And then 30 years later, you come back to this town and you start telling stories about it. You know, Miss Wilson or whoever was a wonderful woman. She'd walk down the school corridor and you could see her heels floating six inches above the floor. She'd cure the school cat of all its diseases and cast demons out of the headmaster. Who would believe that? 30 years on, lots of you would still be around, and you'd be able to say no. And yet, those kinds of stories, not those ones, but other stories equally improbable, (laughs) were being told about Jesus and published and and, and circulated no more than 30 years after the event. The, The Gospels are early. They're accurate as well. Uh, I won't go into the, the accuracy of the, 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 the writers involved tonight because we haven't got time for that. But if you look at Luke, he's one of the most careful historians we've got from the ancient world. If you look at things that have been questioned, for instance, in Matthew, uh, uh, the, the, the census uh, uh, that uh, brought uh, Mary and Joseph down to Bethlehem, the more we look, the more we uncover real, hard, solid fact behind it. The Gospels are early. They're accurate. They're honest as well. They don't big up the disciples of Jesus. They don't put halos around their heads or things like that. Mark tells us some pretty um, uh, interesting stories about Peter. Clearly, he's not like a hero at all. And that's Mullers think is because Mark worked for some years as Peter's translator when he moved around to different countries. And so Mark's gospel is based on the memoirs of Peter. Huh. And clearly those are the stories that Peter told about himself and about Jesus as he talked about uh, Jesus to a new audience. He didn't make himself big or important or anything like that, and show how often he had failed and messed up. And so the Gospels are honest. And fourth, the Gospels are unique. There are no other books like them anywhere else in the ancient world. And uh, this is something you've got to remember. When you look at, for instance, Dan Brown, whom I mentioned a minute ago, um, um, in Dan Brown's novel, uh, his hero, Sir Lee Tebing. well, his, his hero, his expert, Sir Lee Tebing, has um, uh, a meeting with the hero and heroine where he clears up some facts about the origins of the Gospels for them. More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relatively few were chosen for inclusion. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John among them. The Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan Roman Emperor Constantine the Great. And the heroine is a little bit dim. Oh no, he goes on a minute. I, during this fusion of religions, Constantine needed to strengthen the new Christian tradition, and he held a famous ecumenical gathering known as the Council of Nicaea. At this gathering, Keeping said, many aspects of Christianity were debated and voted upon. The date of Easter, the role of bishops, the administration of sacraments, and of course, the divinity of Jesus. And the heroine is not quite getting this, says, I don't follow his divinity. My dear, Teabing declared, until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet. A great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. And she's, she's still not sure what he's saying. So she says, uh, not the son of God? Right, Teabing said. Jesus' establishment as the son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicea." And she's still not there. Hold on, you're saying Jesus' divinity was the result of a vote? A relatively close vote at that, t added. And that's a claim that thousands of people have have swallowed by reading the novel or seeing the turkey of a film that came out of it. And and they end up with basically this story. The Dan Brown claim about Jesus goes like this. That if Jesus existed, he was certainly made into something he never claimed to be, the Son of God. The the claim is that Constantine, who uh, freed up Christianity in the Roman Empire, was actually a pagan emperor. He never believed in Jesus, it's just that the Christians were so numerous he thought he'd better join them rather than than leave them behind. So he gave them some freedom. He was a pagan emperor. The bishops who came to Nicaea were illiterate, they couldn't read. (laughs) After all, the church had been in in hiding for 300 years and the the leaders were not really the best people around. Third, uh, fortunately, we've got witnesses who can tell us exactly what happened because they were there at the council. Sabinus and Pappus, two historians, also wrote about it. We know that from Socrates. Now, that's not Socrates, the Greek philosopher, or Socrates, the Brazilian football player. This is another Socrates who wrote books. Um, Nobody worshipped Jesus before this. It all started at Nicaea when Constantine, this sham religion going. And uh, there's more to it as well. Isn't there more to it? Come on, come on, come on, come on. That's better. But actually, Dan Brown's got it all completely wrong. First of all, Constantine wasn't a pagan. Admittedly, he hadn't been baptized as a Christian at this point. And that's because in those days, people had the idea that they wanted to go to their their death with as few sins on their conscience as they could. And so you would wait until you felt you were on the point of death before you would ask for a baptism. And that's what happened with Constantine. He was baptized the day before he died. That wasn't because that was when he started believing in Jesus. That was just how he lived it. So Constantine wasn't a pagan. Uh, The bishops weren't illiterate, just the opposite. In fact, most of the key intellectual thinkers of the Western world at that point in the 4th century were Christian bishops. And some of the great centers of Christianity, Alexandria in Egypt, for instance, Rome itself were places where the the keenest intellectual minds of the time were at at work uh, producing arguments uh, based on their belief in Jesus Christ. The eyewitnesses that he mentions and he cites who they are, they lived a century later. They knew no more about what happened at the Council of Nicaea than you or I do. As for Socrates, yep, he does quote Sabinus, who was supposed to have written about it. And he quotes Sabinus to say, This man is a liar, you can't trust a word he says. And so it doesn't help really, does it? The whole case is silly. Arians, as well, oh, well let's, let's just not get into Arianism tonight. The canon of Scripture was never discussed at Nicaea. Pappus, whom he quotes, who lived in the 16th century. That is 1,300 years after Nicaea, so he knows nothing about the whole thing. The close vote on Jesus' divinity, well, that came out at 313 to 5. <laughs> And uh, there's more to it, but uh, I won't won't go into that right now. So Art Ehrman, again, was asked, as a non-Christian, what he thought about Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code when he was speaking in 2007 at Stanford University. That's when the novel was all over the place. And he said this. In the question and answer period, he was asked to what extent the New Testament canon, or the formation of the New Testament canon, were discussed at Nicaea, and his answer was simple, not at all the books that were supposed to be in the Bible, which Gospels were real Gospels, it wasn't decided. It was not on the agenda at all. It was never discussed because it was already clear that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John stood streets a bit ahead of the others. The questioner responded by citing the Da Vinci Code and asking, who should he, the questioner, believe? Ehrman, after a few seconds of mocking sarcasm, pointed out that everything Brown says about the Council of Nicaea is absolutely wrong. (laughs) And it's tragic, isn't it? It's sad that people are being fed these kinds of ideas in popular novels and film and, uh, and on social media, and it's just so absolutely wildly a travesty of what the, the Bible really says. This is something you might remember from uh, a week or two ago when we talked about which books should be in the Bible. We said, this is the way it worked. This is how we got to the, the new... T- ...that we have today. By the end of the first century, amongst those groups of Christians scattered all over the place, there were already two documents going round One was called the fourfold gospel, and it contained Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Nothing else, just those four. The authorized accounts that everybody knew were accurate accounts of Jesus. The other thing was the Corpus Paulinum, which is most of Paul's writings. And over the next couple of hundred years, it all came together. By the early second century, 7,029 verses of the New Testament were already accepted by everybody. Everybody. That's out of 7,959, so there's not enough. awful long way to go. By the end of the 2nd century, Revelation and Hebrews had been accepted as well. And that took us up to 7,737 verses, almost completely there. And so in the next century, you find people putting together all kinds of lists until in 367 AD... Bishop Athanasius sends a letter around the churches to settle the date of Easter and says, by the way, guys, let's just rehearse together those books that we have agreed that are all uh, biblical books. And his list of books is exactly the same as ours. So it wasn't the case that other books and other gospels and other stories about Jesus uh, uh, circulated in a legendary kind of a way. What we've got is a New Testament that you can trust and rely on, and uh, uh, all of the evidence points in that direction. This guy is, is, is Richard Baucom, uh, an evangelical scholar who wrote a book that won the Templeton Prize a few years ago. And uh, it, his book, well, let's give you the whole thing, is, is, is called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he said in the early church, people who, and he provided plenty of proof for this, by the way, people who knew the stories, people who had been there in the early days, were treated as eyewitnesses people who could keep the story right. And uh, they had the job, over the early church, of making sure that legends didn't creep into the stories about Jesus. As the documents of the, the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John circulated, the early Christians kept them sacrosanct. There was a man called Tatian, for instance, who had the bright idea that maybe we could combine all four Gospels into one handy volume. <laughs> Save people a bit of trouble. And the church said, no, it stood right against the whole thing. There was a man called Marcion who wanted to cut bits out of the New Testament because he wanted everything Jewish to be cut out of the Bible. And the, the, the church said, no, we're going to keep those books the way they were because they tell us the truth about Jesus. So Jesus really lived, and we've got a good account of what he was actually like. So you've got to ask the next question. Did Jesus actually do miracles or did he not? Well, what can we say about that? I think the first thing is you can say there is no trace of a Jesus story without the miraculous in it. It's not that lots of miracles were added into the story to make it more exciting or more big or important as time went by. The miraculous is there from the start. And you notice some other things as well about Jesus and the miracles. First of all, these miracles are carefully reported without any excitement. That's not usual when people want to use miracles to make their story big. I remember when I was doing medieval English at university, having to study things like the life of St. Edmund. Uh, that's the guy that Bury St. Edmund is named after today. And he was an English saint. uh, And this was supposed to be a history of his. And it got me so annoyed because he kept on doing miracles. Even after he was dead, you know, his corpse would worn away... Burglars should come to, to burgle the church, things like that. And, uh, you know, it's written in such hectic Middle English. It's, And do you know what happened next? Well, you never believed There was another great miracle for the blessed saint did the most amazing thing you've ever heard of. Oh, no, 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 I've heard enough of these things. I found it very difficult to, 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 to translate because I just didn't believe it. a word of what was being said there. There were just legends that had grown and grown and grown and grown. Bockham shows in his book, The Eyewitnesses, there was just no time for the stories about Jesus to grow into myths. Because when that kind of thing happens, handed down from one person to another, to another, to another, to another, it takes at least three generations before myths start to grow. And there was not time. Jesus was too recent for any of that to happen. The miracles are reported without any excitement whatsoever in the Gondos, and Luke was a doctor, and he's interested in medical details, and he gives you as much medicine as he possibly can. It's obvious that he believed the stories he was telling, and he'd examined them as far as he possibly could. Um, what else have we got? They don't grow as the stories told by successive authors. This is interesting, isn't it? Because Mark is probably the first of the Gospels to written, and then Matthew and Luke had a copy of Mark in front of them as they wrote their work. But sometimes when they tell the stories that Mark has already told... They don't make them bigger. They don't look at ah, I can add in a few details here and make it more exciting. Let's have let's have three people get their sight black instead of one, you know. It wasn't that kind of thing. And you find that Matthew and Luke tend to telescope the stories because Mark has already told them. They don't need to make them. So they know that they're there. But often they'll miss out details that Mark has already put in because they're not trying to create a big story and make an impression. They just want to tell you what actually and really happened and uh, uh, yeah we've said this one already but the miracles were reported within the lifetime of people who could dispute them who could stand up and say no it wasn't like that you christians you've just made it seem far too big a story and it wasn't like that at all so all of these things uh, uh, show you that uh, the gospel writers were actually not trying to make something up they were simply trying to report the facts as well as they could and finally the apocryphal gospels If you want to see how silly myth-making can get, you just need to look at those fake stories about Jesus that were produced towards the end of the second century and the third century when Jesus had become a big name and people wanted to hear about him. They were stories with no historical background whatsoever, many of them about what Jesus was like when he was a child. And they're just impossible to believe. For example, look at this. And the boy Jesus was about six years old and he was sent by his mother Mary to fill the water jar. But there was a great crowd at the water cistern, and the pitcher was jostled and broke. Then Jesus spread out the cloak he was wearing, filled it with water, and brought it to his mother. And his mother was amazed and kept in their heart all that she had seen. Now, oh, come on. Silly, isn't it? At the time when Joseph was sowing, seeds the boy, Jesus sowed also one measure of grain. And his father gathered one hundred great measures, and he gave it to the poor and the orphans. They should have got Jesus working on sunflowers, shouldn't they? That made a difference. And he, he was about eight years old, and when his father, a carpenter, was making plows and yokes, he received a bed from a certain rich man, so he might make it exceedingly great and suitable. And since one of the required pieces was shorter, and he did not have a measure, Joseph was distressed, not knowing what to do. The boy came to his father and said, Put down the two pieces of wood and align them for new end. Joseph did just as Jesus said to him. And the boy stood at the other end and took hold of the short piece of wood and stretched it. And he made it equal to the other piece of wood. And he said to his father, do not be distressed, but do what you wish. And Joseph embraced, kissed him, saying, blessed, blessed am I, for God gave me this boy. Now clearly these are just fairy stories, aren't they? Invented to make Jesus look supernatural in some kind of way. They're the first century equivalent of a marvel comic It's not exactly what you get when you turn to the real Gospels, the real story about Jesus. Okay, so do we know what Jesus taught? If Jesus really existed, and if Jesus did miracles... Can we be sure that we've got the message that he actually came came to people with? Well, this guy, Joachim Jeremias, who's one of the greatest Jewish scholars of the 20th century, wrote a book called Jesus and the Message of the New Testament. Well, he wrote several other very good books as well. But Jeremias uh, uh, said that what you need to do when you're looking at the, 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 the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount, which we're looking at this morning, is try to translate them back into Aramaic. That was the common language in Galilee, the language that Jesus and his disciples spoke most of the time. As we have them written by the Gospel writers, they're in Greek. But you can take them back into Aramaic. And Jeremiah said, when you do that, you find you have a funny kind of sing song quality. And he said that that's because in those days, rabbis would teach in that sing-song-see-sawing kind of a way. It's the way we still learn things nowadays, 30 days, September, April, June, and November. A little bit of poetry helps to keep things in your mind, doesn't it? And that was the way that rabbis used to do it. And so Yeremias said, when you take this back into Aramaic, you are hearing the speaking voice of Jesus himself. And that's something nobody noticed until Yeremias uh, tried doing it. So all of the evidence shows that, yes, what's there in the Gospels comes direct to us from Jesus. Also, when you look at the other Gospels that people have started saying, oh, well, there are lots of other Gospels around, you find they're contradictory. They're short on detail. They don't tell you much about Jesus and his life and anything like that, unless it's the fairy stories that I've already been quoting. And and what's more, they don't sound like the real thing at all. This, This manuscript here is the Gospel of Thomas. Which is a collection of 114 sayings, which some sc- scholars have now started saying, "Oh well, you know, we used to we used to look at this alongside the the, the old New Testament ones because some of the sayings in there are probably authentically Jesus sayings." It's just possible. It's close enough that some of the sayings in the Gospel of Thomas may be genuine sayings of Jesus. Certainly, it does quote some sayings which are there in the New Testament, but every so often the mask slips. <laughs> And you see, this is actually written by some cult members who are trying to make their teaching as close to Jesus' teaching as they possibly can. For example, here is the way that the Gospel of Thomas actually finishes. Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary go away from us, for women are not worthy of life. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus said, Look, I will draw her in so as to make her male, so that she too can become a living male spirit similar to you. But I say to you, Every woman who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, what? doesn't sound exactly like the gospel, does it? And so although the gospel of Thomas may have a few bits of history stuck into it, it's there to deceive you, really. It's there because the people who wrote this manuscript wanted to twist and distort Christianity completely, so they put stuff in there that just is, doesn't chime with the rest of the gospels. And these contradictory bits and pieces of documents are nowhere near on the same level of care and honesty uh, and, and straightforward accuracy as the real Gospels that we've got. So we can be pretty sure what we've got in the Gospels are what Jesus actually taught. And the real reason, the, the, the ultimate reason, it seems to me, is nobody ever in history ever taught like this. And uh, uh, one of the strongest arguments for the existence of Jesus is the fact that, uh, you know, Somebody said these things. Some of the greatest stories in the world. Some of those memorable sayings. Some of the things that you have to think through for hours before you really understand them. Somebody said those things. So if this was fabricated, if it was made up, then the person who invented this fictional imaginary Jesus was even cleverer (laughs) than Jesus himself seems to be. And obviously the, the straightforward answer is no, there's nobody who made up Jesus as a fictional character. This stuff which is unique, which is unexampled anywhere else in, in, in uh, Jewish literature at the time, this has got to be the product of one great mind. The greatest writing in Jewish culture for the last 700 years. Where did that come from? Clearly, this is the voice of Jesus we're hearing. Now, all of that leads up to the final thing that we're going to do. look at which is, did he then really claim to be God? If we know that the stories are true about him, and we know he was doing miracles, and we know that he he, uh, uh, taught the words that are recorded in the Bible, did he really claim to be God? Well, the Gospels seem pretty clear about it, don't they? Okay, there is no verse in the New Testament that says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am God. (laughs) Because that was not the way that they would have spoken in those days. Anyhow? But when you look at the language Jesus uses, it's pretty clear again and again exactly what he's claiming. For example, one day he was asked by the Jews in the Gospel of John, uh, when he was talking about Abraham, you're know, you not 30 years old and you're talking about Abraham? (laughs) How do you know about the times of Abraham? And he simply says, before Abraham was, I am. And when he says, I am, they pick up stones to throw at him. Why? Because he's just taken on his lips the sacred name, Yahweh, the name of God, which a, a holy Jew was not even allowed to say. To even take that name on your lips was swearing. Nobody knows quite how that happened, actually. It was just one of those, those traditions that grew up. But Jesus was not only taking the words on his own lips, he was saying, I am, I am the I am, I am God, I am timeless. And they really knew, understood what he was talking about. Again, Jesus talks, to himself, talks about himself again and again as the son of man in the Gospels. And it doesn't just mean I had a human father. (laughs) No, what it means is, is I am the figure you read about in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7, when somebody like a son of man goes into the very presence of God himself and is given a kingdom and rule and authority alongside God, that is who I am. There are other reasons too. The Father is in me, said Jesus, and I in him. And... uh, Uh, he, he talked about God in a way that differentiated his relationship with God from our relationship with God. He didn't talk about our Father. That's how he taught us to pray. But when he was talking about their relationship and his relationship with God, he talked about my Father and your Father. As if his sonship, his relationship to God, was on a different level, of a different type, to the best relationship we could possibly have with God. And he wasn't being proud, he wasn't being arrogant, he was simply stating it as it is. You like, my God and your God, yeah, I'll put it up there anyhow. And so Jesus clearly was making an important claim, and that's what led people uh, like C.S. Lewis to say there are only three ways you can go with this. If the evidence is correct, which it seems to be, then don't say Jesus is just a human teacher you can't say that and who has said and you've probably heard this quote before i'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him i'm ready to accept jesus as a great moral teacher but i don't accept his claim to be god that is the one thing we must not say a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things jesus said would not be a great moral teacher he would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell <laughs> You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and Lord. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so, C.S. Lewis said, this is the great trilemma. You know, a dilemma. It's when you've got two choices and you can't make up your mind between them. Shall I have fish and chips for tea or shall I finish off the steak pie is going out of date? That's a dilemma. A trilemma is when you've got three choices and you must go one of those three ways because there is no other way to go. Now, if the facts that we've been talking about tonight are correct, then this is the great trilemma. I've borrowed this from somebody else's website because it's a very well-known thing. If Jesus truly said, I am God, then either it was true or it was false. If it was true, then he's the Lord. There's no question about that. If it was false, he was either a liar, because he knew he was t- telling a falsehood, or he was a lunatic, because he was saying something that was just absolutely crazy. Was Jesus a liar or a lunatic? Well, if he's a liar, it's strange, isn't it? Just somebody who talked more incisively about truth and falsehood, about honesty than anybody else in that culture for hundreds of years, he was actually a liar and a sham himself. That does not seem possible. Jesus was somebody who didn't seem to be lying for any kind of advantage because, let's face it, he went to his death still making this claim to be God when it was doing to do him no good whatsoever. People who are liars, people who are cult leaders, people who are shams tend to want to stay alive. And if Jesus had just been a liar, I think, oh, "Okay, okay, okay, I will confess, I'm not God." It was a good story, though, wasn't it? I'll, 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 I'll confess. I'll tell my my story to the papers. Just let me off the hook. Jesus never did that. He went to his death, stubbornly proclaiming that he was the Son of God. Was he a lunatic? It doesn't seem that way i had a little video i was going to use as part of this but in our problems with technology i've just not never used it a doctor uh, called james mulcahy who's a member of our church back in exeter i did a little interview with him once about uh, is it possible that jesus was mad and james said said no it's not as a doctor i know how to spot delusional people i see them every day and you can soon tell people." sometimes they're delusional because they're depressed sometimes they're delusional because they're under too much pressure and stress in their lives but you can soon tell the inconsistency in what they're saying and if jesus had been mad somebody would have noticed and then he would have lost his entire following why because the jews in those days thought that someone who was mad was accursed by god he done something that had caused God to scramble his brains. And if Jesus had shown the slightest sign of insanity, I am God! Yesterday I was Henry VIII and tomorrow I'll be a cabbage, but today I'm being God. Then nobody would have fallen for a minute. And people lived with him in close conditions, didn't they? Out on the hills at night, nowhere to rest his head. Hemmed around by large crowds, all wanting them, him to do something about their mother-in-law's lumbago. That kind of thing. And yet Jesus never showed any signs of insanity. So what you've got to say is if he wasn't a lunatic and he wasn't a liar, there is only one option left. And now I think we'll leave it for tonight. Colin?